0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is on the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is October the 31st, 2023. Halloween in America. I'm not sure whether Halloween is supposed to be a horrible festival, a festival of celebration, of eating candy. Or just a celebration of dressing up. My wife is certainly dressed up today. Um, When it comes, though, to miserable days, horrible days, haunted days, it seems as if it isn't just on Halloween that artists are having a tough time. Over the last few weeks, we've had a number of different shows Uh, underlining how tough it is to be a creative, to be a journalist. We did a show last week with Ray Suarez, used to be one of or still remains one of my journalistic heroes, the voice of NPR and PBS who's fallen in to the working poor. He had a, a confessional session with me last week. And we did a show with Christian Lorenzen, uh, who describes himself as a cranky old New York Gen X, uh, made me feel particularly old as a boomer, um, about how tough it is to be a literary critic. He described it as a half-life in our digital age of cultural decay and disinformation. And to make things even worse, to turn it into an existential crisis, we did a show with last week with the San Francisco artist, Carla Ortiz, a very well-known graphic artist who talks about the way in which generative AI could make artists extinct. In fact, she's involved in a major law case against one of the generative AI platforms. It all speaks to the death of the artist, or at least the death of the working artist. And one man who I think got this before anyone else is an old friend, William uh Bill He. Uh, was on the show a couple of years ago talking about a book that he came out with in uh, 2020, The Death of the Artist. Um, and he has been someone, I think, who has been a little ahead of his time in observing a lot of our cultural trends. Perhaps the reason is because he's based in Portland, which is <coughs> a little a little ahead of everyone, even ahead of San Francisco, where I am, Bill. Well, congratulations on... Getting the death of the artist right. Your, your latest collection of essays is The End of Solitude. Do you feel vindicated here? Do you feel right, virtuous?
1: Uh, you know, it's a grim satisfaction to see the trends that you identified however many years ago continuing to get worse and worse to the point where more and more people are recognizing them. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's but, but seriously, it's, it's very sad for me. I mean, I, I, I think artists, um, we owe them our gratitude. We, we just think about how much of your day you spend consuming stories in one form or another, uh, writing in one form or another, music. There are people behind those things, and we're getting them all at this point for free or dirt cheap. I mean, it's, it's deeply unfair.
0: Bill, though, in all seriousness, how many times can an artist die, or can, how many times can the artist die? Haven't we been getting the kinds of books that you've been written, you've been writing, and others have been writing? You, you're one of the first in the in the current digital environment. But haven't we been told about the death of the artist ever since we've had artists?
1: I'm not actually sure we have. I'm not sure what you're referring to. And of course, the title was chosen by my publisher and i it's hyperbolic in the way of of titles but i certainly think as you modified the death of the working artist i mean people have always made art they're always going to make art the question is can they support themselves doing it as i said i think it's a matter of fairness but it's also a matter of what kind of work are we going to get if you are making your stuff in you know in the cracks around your day job or jobs you know your work isn't going to be as good and we the audience are going to suffer I mean, there used to be. Look, we can. If you, you want me to think historically, certainly the starving artist was a valid stereotype. Uh, but you know, as I talk about in the the artist after the after World War II, we created this infrastructure of the arts that enabled serious working artists to have a decent living, and our, the arts really flourished both commercially and in the nonprofit sector, and that's really fallen apart.
0: Can we see this though in in a, in a broader prism of? neoliberal economics. I mean, Ray Suarez was on the show. He wasn't talking about the death of the artist or even the journalist. He was talking about the way in which the middle American middle class is being decimated. So is this part of a a broader neoliberal crisis of the middle class?
1: It definitely is. I think in some respects the artist, the quote unquote content creator has special problems specifically about what's happened to the price of content, which is that it's been driven down to zero. So it isn't, it isn't just another story of the death of the middle class, but it's definitely part of it. And if the, you know, the, the demonetization of content is one side of the artist's ledger, the other side is rent and tuition and cost of living, especially in creative centers, and that's affecting everybody. I would say the artists, I mean, artists themselves say this about themselves, that they were kind of the first people to inhabit a gig economy. I mean, after all, the term gig economy comes from music, from musicians. Um, uh, and now lots and lots of people are experiencing that reality.
0: As if things couldn't get worse, you talked about the price of content driven down to zero. but then you add the Carla Ortiz piece about these generative AI platforms that are acquiring our intelligence and then essentially appropriating the creativity of Bill Deresewitz or Carla <laughs> or even putting it into an algorithm uh that yeah. that th- that makes the situation even more absurdly tragic, doesn't it
1: It does, uh, but if if we maybe want to have an argument here because you're a tech guy, I wrote a piece uh, maybe you saw it. Um, I think just earlier this year about why I don't think AI is really going to replace human creativity. Now, I think it can absolutely do so financially. I think I start the piece by saying that AI can put artists out of business, but it's not going to replace them. Um, uh, that's my uh, page. And it's yeah, uh, it's, I guess it's down a little bit. Yeah, it's it's going to be down it. a little bit on the right side. Um, it was in persuasion. Um, yeah. Yeah. AI can put artists out of business. I don't think it can replace them. And I know that this is a very risky thing to say, especially from someone who really does, knows almost nothing about how the technology works. But my argument is that as I understand the technology, the way it works is by making high probability choices, right? Uh, You know, you feed a billion examples of something into the computer and it's going to be able to generate the the next example by, you know, like autocomplete. right? High probability choices. The whole point of art is that it's a series of low probability choices it's, and creativity more broadly. It's people doing things precisely that haven't been done before, the, the kind of things that haven't the, the very kind of things that haven't been done before. So people will say, well, you know, AI can make a perfect Drake song It's like, OK, because we already have Drake songs so they can make another one. But we don't value Drake because he sounds like Kanye or because he sounds like John Legend or whoever. We value him because he has a different sound that he came to on his own. And what I am skeptical about is that AI is going to be able to do that.
0: Yeah. And your piece in Persuasion was why AI will never rival human creativity. That was from May. Of there year. you go. Um, but th- it's not good news, is it? The way in which, uh, <laughs> no, no, the way in which these news. now multi billion, hundred billion dollar platforms like OpenAI. Are somehow appro- or trying to appropriate creativity, claiming to, and it certainly won't have a good impact on um, the, 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 the price of creativity. You say it's driven down to zero. The, the Hollywood strike right. was very much bound up with this. And, 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 and right. so far, at least, screenwriters, the, the price of a quality s- script in Hollywood hasn't been driven down to zero. Well, that's, well, fair enough. I think where it's really gonna hurt
1: artists first is the kind of work they do that doesn't draw on sort of their fullest and deepest creative powers, but does help pay the bills, like say graphic design or illustration, if you're a visual artist or various kinds of like corporate or business writing, if you're a writer, like a lot of writers do that kind of stuff to help pay the bills. It often pays better than their actual creative work. And that's the kind of low-level creativity that I think AI, you know, is already replacing. Um,
0: yeah. You yeah. wrote recently an interesting piece um, in Salma Gundi. You seem to find the most yeah. obscure publications, Bill, and, and find your way into them. Thirteen ways of looking at art. You might have alternatively yes. written thirteen ways of looking at artists. Tell me what these. I mean, thirteen is a lot. Mm. What are they? What are one of, some of the best ways of looking at art? It's, it's a nice right. piece. By well, the way, you know, and it's the, short.
1: thank you. Thank you. It, the title is an homage to Wallace Stevens' 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And it's got 13 paragraphs, and each paragraph starts with the words art is for, or almost yeah. all of them start
0: art is artists for. Art is for truth, right. class is for justice, artist is good exactly. for us. You don't, of course, mean half of this.
1: Uh, right. Half of them I'm criticizing, and half of them I agree with. but... I mean, um, you know, the editor sort of asked me to write kind of in this general ballpark, and I started to think about it, and, and, and I decided that I would try to write a piece where I really look at this, this question, like, what is art for, that I've kind of been taking for granted, I've been giving various answers, I haven't really sort of come to terms with, you know, well, what's the, what is it essentially about? I'm always looking for, like, either a, a theory that can unify everything, or the one thing that's the most essential thing. Um, and I kind of land on the idea that art is for increasing life, which doesn't seem to mean very much, but I unpack that and I say, how can we live more if we can't live longer? And I think we can do that through the intensity and the, and of, our, of our presence and our attention to the world. And art is fundamentally about intensifying life and calling attention to the world around us so i mean the the sort of cliched way of saying this is that art makes us feel more alive you know i talk about listening to abbey road and just realizing like yeah that's actually what this is i feel like i'm in contact with something that is an atheist i'm very reluctant to call spirit or the spirit but there's something happening there's some kind of flow of energy that is so important to us that we spend, as I said earlier, we spend hours a day with it and we venerate the people who created, it and we go back to works that were written 500 or 2,000 years ago and we are still dr- we're still drinking from this well. And I think that that's a remarkable thing that I, I, I don't really think I can explain, but it's just true.
0: So if art makes us more alive, that also adds to the the darkness of your of your general cultural pessimism. You had another piece in Tablet this year. You're very prolific, Bill. You write a lot. Uh, we're all bored of culture. Um, Anglo-Calvinist moralism has turned the American arts into something strenuously polite and deadly dull. I'm not sure I entirely abli- agree with you, <laughs> but if it's true, it's particularly worrying because it's not just, we're not getting a, a nice potato chip or peanut or a glass yes. of wine anymore. We're, 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 we're losing what makes us alive. Yes,
1: and I mean, in that piece, uh, you know, they pulled out the Anglo-Catholic, Anglo-Calvinist moralism part because it sounds good in a subhead, but there are several things that I identify, and the the logic of the Internet and of Internet economics is part of it. I mean, basically, there's this whole moralizing thing that's been happening in American art for a long time, and that is most clear now in what some people call wokeness, which is really just a a sort of a French theory, a a bastard of French theory and Anglo-Calvinist moralizing. It's the kind of latest version of the church ladies with a new ideology but also the way the algorithms kind of feed our preferences back to us. And I, I'm guessing that a lot of your listeners have experienced this say in their Netflix queue, there was that golden, you know, platinum age of television, this out, efflorescence of creativity, HBO, et cetera, in the first decade of the century, maybe the second, but now it's just all seems to have become formulaic and, and, And they're just churning out hundreds and hundreds of shows that are all just kind of okay. You know, they're not bad, but they're not great. They're just okay. And I feel, with all due respect, the podcast, I'm not saying this one, but a lot of the podcasts I listen to are just kind of okay. And the enormous amount of content that the New York Times, excuse me, the enormous amount of content that the New York Times is generating all the time is, you know, it's all just kind of pretty good. And and I wonder where the really, the really exciting stuff is going to come from, uh, in the context of both of this kind of suffocating moralizing and this this deadly uh, economic situation.
0: Uh, Bill, I'm not sure whether you just described my podcast as mediocre or average. I'm, you're lucky to be on the show. I don't know quite know why. I there are you exceptions,
1: up. Andrew. I don't know why either. I wasn't. I'm just saying in general. I know I there are podcasts I get, like very much. Yeah, my own
0: back on you. Um, I was gonna consider I, I described you in the bottom third as author of the end of solitude, but you describe yourself on Twitter as a minor American writer. And I think Correct. next time you come on the show, I'm gonna describe you as a, as a minor American writer. For the moment, you can be a major American I writer. am definitely yeah, I, I minor. Admit, you know, I'm in two two minds on this stuff. On the one hand, Maybe you have a point. On the other hand, doesn't it make us all seem like old farts? Right.
1: And I, I think I I don't know if I said sort of gesture to that in that piece. I certainly think about this a lot. Is it just that we're old that we're out of touch? Blah, blah, blah. Maybe. And we're
0: talking about, you know, I've got my Bob Dylan t-shirt on. You just mentioned the Beatles. Right. We all had our moment and the kids, whether it's rap music or 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 short videos on uh instagram or or, or TikTok. i mean they've got their stuff and our parents thought we were mindless too so so let me say a couple of things
1: first of all that's absolutely a possibility and no doubt it's true in some respects but i want to point out i didn't just say anything about music i don't listen to the music that the kids listen to and i'm sure they love it i was to, i mentioned netflix i mentioned the new york times podcasts these are all things that i consume and that you know i'm certainly part of the target audience for so the you know, kids are gonna have to make their own decisions about this, whether they think, I mean of course they don't have any point of comparison so I don't know what they think. But I will say this, um, when we were kids and when other people were kids at different times and then going back before us and for a long time, um, art was really an occasion. You know, a new album by a great musician came out or a new novel by John Updike or a, you know a movie by a director that people respected. And like the world kind of came to a standstill for a few days or weeks while we absorbed it. Like it really, it was, it was existentially important to people. Um, I don't think that's nostalgia. I think that that's just true. That, that, that is how art was for a long time received. It was with a sense of reverence. That kind of, you know, that fountain of the spirit that I was talking about before. I think we can see now that the way people consume, you know, music, television, and so film and so forth, young people and not young people, isn't that way at all. It's just one thing after another. You just turn Spotify on, and it's one song after another, and you don't even remember the song that excited you today. You don't even remember it. Connected. Is that
0: because we're not paying for it? Is
1: it because it's essentially yes. free
0: on Spotify?
1: It's be, it's so so for two reasons. We're not paying for it, so so it's not you know our kind of investment isn't as great. But because we're not paying for it, all this stuff has to be produced much faster and in much greater quantity than used to be the case. So like I said before, this is why everything is just kind of okay, because nobody has the time to really make it great, because nobody can afford
0: to put in that time. Well, some people can. What do you think of contemporary criticism? I... Regular viewers, listeners to the show know I'm a huge movie fan. I went to the Scorsese. I'm a big Scorsese fan. I went to his Killers of the Flower Moon, which was described by the New York Times uh, as an unsettling masterpiece. I thought it was really boring. It was three and a half hours. I, as my wife reminds me, I slept for about two hours of it, so I do not <laughs> even remember what it was about. Wow. What is your take on the quality of contemporary Criticism. Um, do, do the two go hand in hand? Is your crisis of culture also a crisis of cultural criticism? Where are the the you know the, the Susan Sontags of the world these days? Right. I know you don't think they're around anymore. Well,
1: uh, I'm not so
0: sure about that.
1: Um, I did just write a piece that you're covertly referencing about Elizabeth Hardwick, who's one of the great critics of the second half of the 20th century and i don't think there are elizabeth Hartwig's around but then there was only one back then too yeah Um, and your
0: piece is in um your your liberties Liberties, another
1: high profile publication um that's why i'm a minor american writer but um i have to say that um i do read uh you know a fair amount of, of criticism and um i think there's a lot of good critics now and i think a lot of good younger critics i think there's a lot of energy in literary criticism cultural criticism i'm not sure how to explain that i mean i think to a certain extent uh writers have started to adjust to the fact that they're not going to get paid anything and uh and they're like well screw it i'm going to write anyway or uh you know there have been some very good things for culture about the internet and i would say that substack is actually one of them and substack uh, and also all the small journals like Liberties, which I, I think is a wonderful journal. Even yeah, and
0: Liberties, uh, they they actually sponsor the show. They do pay for their content. They have money, and they, and, and you didn't yes. write this thing for free on Elizabeth. Oh,
1: no, 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 no. no. And it's, and Leon Wieseltier is the editor. He's a great editor, and I'm very grateful. I'm very glad that there's somebody sponsoring the journal. No, uh, I, I'm just, I mean, I was being glib, but... Um, I wish that Liberties had the kind of profile, the kind of presence that it deserves to have. Part of the problem is that Liberties essays, like my Hardwick essay, for which I was paid well, you know, they're four, five, six thousand words. Nobody wants to read four, five. Very few people want to read that at that length, and almost no one wants to publish at that length. I was told by a, a much more successful new publication that I'm sorry, Bill, we can't publish three thousand word reviews anymore. And I'm like, I didn't write 3,000-word reviews. I wrote five and 6,000-word reviews. And the editor just laughed.
0: You know. What about the New do, Yorker, though? The New Yorker still does long stuff. The New Yorker and still does long stuff.
1: Well, the, the Atlantic, does, it's also shorter than it used to be, a lot of their stuff. But yes, the New Yorker and the Atlantic. Listen, there are basically two magazines left and two newspapers left. The two magazines we just mentioned, the two newspapers are The Times and The Washington Post, and The Post looks like it's not doing so well. You know, so all of media has, all of print media has consolidated to those four legacy publications that have managed to, to you know, put a subscription base under them. And they can pay writers well and publish, you know, but they still, I mean, The New Yorker clearly doesn't publish the kind of long-form journalism that it used to. I mean, you used to have reported yeah. pieces that could occupy the entire front half of the magazine. They haven't done that in years.
0: And what about you mentioned Substack? Is that a viable model? I don't know whether you have a, a paid product or you just give your your stuff away for free on Substack. But there are we 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 were talking earlier about Andrew Sullivan, who I know some of his yes. work you like. Um we all like him. He's a very smart guy, very good writer. He's selling, he's probably making a lot of money on Substack or is it like the internet economy a winner take all? Exactly. That's exactly where there's a few Sullivans and then no middle class and everyone else is giving their stuff out for free.
1: That's, that's exactly right. And, and many of the Sullivans are people who established their reputation before Substack came along. And so we're immediately able to, to transfer the platform they already had to the new medium and, and, and actually building up a Substack from scratch, like building up a podcast from scratch is virtually impossible. I mean, A few people can do it, and because a few people do it, a million people think that everybody that they can do it. But it's not how it works.
0: Yes, but I still think Substack. It's it's like blogging. It's like podcasting. All these things were sold, and of course, Substack has its own business model. I am talking to William Deresiewicz, the author of "The End of Solitude," as he describes himself, a miner. American writer. or I don't think he's quite as minor as he'd like to think he is. He's he's nailed a lot of stuff and we, we talked earlier um, about death of an artist. I first heard of you, uh, Bill, with your book Excellent Sheep, which really is an excellent book. The first Thank book you. that really addressed the crisis in the university, I used to teach at Yale. Tell us a little bit. Not everyone will have read Excellent Sheep, and our audience should read it. It's an important book. And how this, the crisis in the university, connects with the crisis of the artist, the crisis of creativity, the crisis of art?
1: Oh, boy, that's a big question. Um, And by the way, the book's going to come out on a 10th anniversary edition in May with a new preface. Just a little plug there. What do all those things have in common? Oh, you'll have to well, come back
0: on because it's a very—it remains to, unusually for these types of books. It remains a very relevant book.
1: Thank you. Well, because unfortunately nothing has changed. Maybe things have only gotten worse in that in that sector as well in higher education. All all of these areas—the arts, higher education, and so forth—what they have in common is that they uh, they're about values that are not easily translated to the market and you asked about neoliberalism towards the beginning of our conversation and a neoliberal, I understand neoliberalism to be fundamentally a, a system of values where the only thing that's valued is that which generates revenue in the marketplace. And you as an individual are valued based on your ability to do that. And institutions, you know, college, you know, fields of study, um, you know, uh, are, are, are measured against how much they're, you know, how much their graduates make or how much they generate for the university. But, you know, after all, the university was not established to make money. I mean, it needs to support itself, but it was established for the pursuit of truth and for the education of the next generation. And those things are being shunted aside, especially the second one, the education of the next generation, um, because, you know, because of this sort of neoliberal uh, regime.
0: Well, how does, but what, I, I don't understand the connection. I mean, can't you have uh, universities for profit and then still teach students to think objectively about complicated issues? Um. Well,
1: n- well, here, I mean, it, maybe, but here are the problems. First of all, if you're charging students a lot of tuition, then they are going to... Uh, they're going to be under pressure to select courses of study majors that are much more immediately negotiable in the marketplace. Um, it's going to be only, you know, you said, you know, maybe great art is still being made, but yeah, maybe by people who are rich. So maybe people are still majoring in art history, but only if they, their parents have a lot of money. So all these sort of realms of of spirit and realms of knowledge are, are being closed to those who, who, you know, Uh, people say, well, this is all elitist, the humanities. Okay, look back to the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, when the middle class and even the working class started to go to college in this country in large numbers. That was also the heyday of the humanities major. Why is that possible? Because college was cheap or free then. And it turns out that kids from the working class and the middle class, they also want to study these things. If they have the economic freedom to do that, which we have taken away from them.
0: But it's it's more complicated than that because you've you've written some stuff recently. You write a lot in Yasha Monk's persuasion. Yeah. You've written about the miseducation of the American mind. It, um, it's not just that the college education is bad; it's it's teaching kids to be intolerant, to take positions okay. and not sides. And I don't really understand why that's got to do with neoliberalism.
1: That's a, okay. So now we're really getting down to it. I'm not saying that neoliberalism causes everything. I think the the sort of the ideological conformity that's taken hold of higher education, uh, that, that has other causes as well. Um, but how does it, one way that I think it connects to neoliberalism is that universities like to believe that they, that they exist for the sake of high ideals. They don't really want to think that they're just in the business of producing people for the job market. Um, neoliberalism, kind of, dis- and various other kind of cultural developments, kind of destroyed the old rationales. And then this new rationale came along in the age of neoliberalism that said, um, "The university is actually for social justice. We're going to teach our children to change the world. We're going to lead the revolution here at our college or university." So now universities and professors and students. Had a had a, uh, could believe that they were in this for higher reasons that it wasn't just about you know getting the getting the 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 most lucrative job that they could after they graduated and teaching students to do that right so like what I'm saying is there was a moral vacuum on campus caused by neoliberalism that the leftist ideology w- has been able to fill but I think it's an enormous bastardization of what the university is about. You can either be about truth or you can be about justice, but you can't be about both at the same time. Certainly not justice as it's conceived on college campuses, which is one particular answer to all the questions that we can ask. If you're really a place where truth is pursued and and young people's minds are developed, you can't come to them with prefabricated answers already ready to go. The university has to be a place of debate but that no, that's yeah yeah I'm not sure uh, mission you don't think, you don't get this, you don't well, see
0: this? I, I do but I'm not sure Socrates would agree that you, truth and justice are separate wasn't that the whole point of the Republic wasn't that the point of his life the point of philosophy? Okay so
1: this is why I modified what I said and I said you know justice as they understand it I mean in the in the Republic he uses the pursuit of truth he uses rationality to try to understand what justice means. So, I mean, Socrates is the granddaddy of everything that happens at, in the academy. So that's an academic process. You, you get together, you hash it out, you debate, you try to understand what something like justice means. That is not what happens at the university now, right? The faculty already know what justice means. And, and, and I like, you know, I, I like to point to a distinction in terminology between justice and social justice. I mean, social justice can mean a lot of things, but what it means in practice is a very specific conception of what justice is. And if you already have a very specific conception of what justice is, you're not going to be in the business of debating what it is. You're going to be in the business of telling students what it is and then sending them forth into the world, you know, to crusade in its name. And that is exactly what we see now.
0: I wonder whether I don't know if you've been following the Sam bankman free trial, but whether that is the the metaphor or the warning about how wrong everything seems to have gone with his fraudulent commitment to al- whatever he called it, uh, effective altruism, essentially stealing money to give it away.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't, I don't follow it closely, and I know, you know. Nor do I follow effective altruism closely. My you're understanding lucky is that you have a mismatch. I know that's my impression. My impression of 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 what he said about it is that this was all just a ruse to begin with. This was all just a cover. He was telling people what they wanted to hear. I would connect that to some of what we've been seeing on campus lately. Um, it, it's not that I think I think these students are sincere about some of their beliefs, but I also think that ultimately. They are a fig leaf for the, you know, sort of careerist, meritocratic, individualistic, you know, ladder climbing. That's their real purpose in life. And we saw this. I don't think that the students who, you know, gleefully celebrated the Hamas attacks should have been canceled or should have had their jobs taken away or anything. But it was revealing that we saw that these, you know, fire-eating radicals who feel very comfortable with the butchery of hundreds of people, had jibes lined up at, you
0: know, big five law firms. Well, that, but that's not there, Bill. It I mean, is there. Was one, there was one guy who had a job lined up. That's okay, I
1: think, we can, I think we can be pretty certain that the kids at Harvard, that a large percentage of them were also headed. And how can we be sure of that? Because this is what most students at Harvard and comparable schools go into when they graduate. They go into consulting, finance. Uh, are you law. saying
0: that it, if, if you have a job lined up at McKinsey or the State Department, you, you, you shouldn't be concerned with the bombing of innocent civilians of one side or another?
1: I'm not saying that. And the State Department is a different story. But McKinsey and uh, you know, the big, the big uh, Wall Street banks, what I'm saying is... Or
0: law school or business school or whatever Yeah, that's right. I'm not, saying, I'm
1: not saying that you shouldn't be concerned. I'm saying that you shouldn't be a hypocrite. And you shouldn't set yourself up as, as these moral paragons uh, who are so certain of their own virtue that they can celebrate mass death on either side. I mean, I don't see a lot of people doing it on the other side. Uh, that doesn't mean I agree with Israeli policy as it's being carried out, blah, blah, blah. But I'm talking about the spectacle that we all saw and that so many people were shocked by that mass murder of innocence was greeted with glee because these people have have gotten so backed up into their own ideology that they've convinced themselves that this is virtuous. And to know on top of that, that they are mainly using their energies to pursue their own self-interest, including at firms whose presence in the world does not conduce to social justice. Please don't tell me you're going to McKinsey or Goldman Sachs to make the world a better place. You may believe that, but nobody else does.
0: I'm not sure if you saw um, the the letter, and I mentioned it before we went live, the open letter from some professors at Columbia and Barnard in defense, and I'm quoting the letter, of robust debate about the history and meaning of the war in Israel-Gaza. I think these kids are getting it on every side. They're getting it from cultural pessimists like you that they're not thinking, there's no art, there's no creativity, there's only conformity. And then when they step out of line, everyone's taking their jobs away and telling them they're heartless and cruel and thoughtless. So what what should they be doing? Keeping their mouths shut? No, listen, I mean, I agree with a
1: lot of that letter. I do think there should be robust debate. As I said before, I don't think these kids should be canceled or doxed. I think that that's a big mistake, but there's been radical, quite radical politics and student activism on campus for quite a few years now, probably about 10 years. And so far, up until October 7th, all that happened with these poor kids is that they were lionized and feted and and given awards by their administration, even when they were already doing things that were kind of heinous screaming at faculty and so on and so forth, they were, they were the toast of the progressive left. So it's not like everyone's been dumping on these kids. But when they came out, I, I don't want to keep repeating myself, I mean, it was really, really disgusting and appalling what they did. I mean, you could come out and say, we believe in Palestinian rights, we believe that Israel's an apartheid state, but this is not the way to do it. And actually, that's what AOC did, but not a lot of other people in her camp did. And that's and that and that's what people are responding to.
0: So, what's it like? Do you think? I don't know. I, I've got kids. Uh, one just graduated. one's still in college. What's it like being in college in, with all this hysteria of one kind or another?
1: Well, I mean, everything that I've been told says that um, it's hard. It's really hard. It's really hard. Students feel like. Uh, If they say the wrong word and they won't even know that it's the wrong word until it's too late, there'll be dire social consequences and maybe even professional consequences. I mean, you know, survey after survey shows that a, a significant majority of college students are afraid to speak their mind. Survey after survey shows that anxiety levels have been increasing and increasing and increasing among college students. I don't think that's the only reason, but I think it's a big reason. And this is why, you know, I I do think that we should have robust debate. I'm a little skeptical that these Columbia Barnard faculty members have always been encouraging of robust debate. I'm glad to hear that that that's actually what they believe in. But robust debate means creating a situation where people can debate robustly. They can express opinions that are unpopular without fear of retribution. And up until October 7th, the people who were most afraid of doing that, certainly at elite college campuses, were not the progressive kids they were everybody else, including the merely liberal kids.
0: And on top of everything else, and this comes back to your neoliberal critique, these kids or their parents or someone's paying 50, 60, 70,000 a year for them to get their miseducation.
1: Yes, but of course, the reason they think it's worth it is because it's not really about the education at all. It's about McKinsey and Goldman and, you know, Stanford Law School and Harvard Medical School. That's really the transaction. But not too many people want to, you know, acknowledge that outside of the privacy of a, fa- of a family discussion.
0: But everyone's in on this, Bill. It's You used to teach at Yale. Uh, There are tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of university professors, overpaid faculty, uh, overpaid bureaucrats. These schools are growing. They get more and more money. It's like the medical system. It's rotten in every sense. And yet there are more and more people committed to the system. So it's very hard to break.
1: It is very hard to break. I don't want us to spin too fully out of control. This is another thing that I wrote recently in Persuasion talking about higher education and I start by saying there are a lot of problems but let's not kid ourselves colleges and universities serve very important functions in our society still Um, are there too many bureaucrats? Yes I would start by firing at least half of the bureaucrats to begin with are professors overpaid? I'm actually not so sure about that some of them may be most most people who teach at universities do not have uh, tenured positions they're adjuncts or these kind of full time, yeah, they're, the, they're, they're the new precarious. Well. They're they the new precarious. I mean, but, in
0: fact, but, in uh, in my conversation with Ray Suarez and some of the other people who contributed to his vo- to, to the volume that he contributed to, they're living in their cars. They can't afford even rent. Yes,
1: yes, yes. No, this is a terrible. It's it's a mil- it's a misallocation of resources. Fire the fire the bureaucrats. Uh, bump up the adjuncts to real jobs. But it's it's important that we don't mistake. Elite, the elite colleges for the system. They're only a small fraction of the system. There's something like 16 million undergraduates in this country. 40% of them go to community colleges. These institutions are still serving very important functions. And we didn't even talk about the research function. There are hundreds of research universities in this country. We, you know, I mean, some, undoubtedly some of that stuff in the humanities and social sciences is a waste of money, but, you know, we have enormous... You know, science and technology research that we're counting on. It's the basis of our economic prosperity, essentially. So we we should not exaggerate and say, let's get rid of the whole system. But I agree with you that parts of it are rotten to the core. And certainly what's happened to undergraduate education, especially among the elites, the future leaders, is, is desperate. It's a desperate situation. And I'm not really sure what to, to do about it.
0: Well, you've ruined my Halloween. It's supposed to be a cheerful day, Bill. Sorry, man. And uh, you've made me even more pessimistic. I'm like you. As You'll you bounce back. Knows. I'll survive. But get, uh, t- to end, uh, perhaps you might suggest a book or a work of art. I know you're not a movie guy, so maybe not a movie. A piece of music, something that we can all listen to to appreciate art that might appeal to everybody, not just young or old, white or black, oh male.
1: Oh, my God. Well, you could listen to The Beatles. They're always great. <laughs> I, uh, you wanted something with broad popular appeal, so I shouldn't tell you that I recently read Berlin Alexanderplatz, the modernist classic from 1920s Berlin.
0: Mm. But it's an amazing. And we did a show book. on Berlin yesterday with. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, with uh, John Kampfner, who uh, just has a new book out on Berlin. Oh, oh, it's uh, and read the Michael Hoffman translation. It's
1: fantastic. Uh, Weimar Berlin, Berlin Alexanderplatz.
0: And is that any, a lot of people use Weimar as a morning to the America of the 2020s, where Weimar, was, of course, was the 1920s. Any, yes, any yes. similarities?
1: Well, um, again, I try not to catastrophize. Uh, obviously, we have left and right battling each other over the dying corpse of liberal democracy. But I still think that a lot of people believe in liberal democracy. And we have a 250-year-old republic with very strong institutions. We're not Weimar, but it doesn't mean that we can be complacent either.